Welcome to the One Stop Shop Podcast. One Stop Shop is Receiptful's weekly podcast with the goal of helping ambitious e-commerce merchants learn from the best. Each episode will have a successful business person tell us their story from their humble beginnings to their triumphs and successes of where they are today. In this episode, we speak with founder Nick of Nick Harry, seller of Daring Men's Socks. We discuss things like which tech tools to use to help your e-com business, when and how to accept feedback, and the pure hard work of starting a company. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is another episode of the One Stop Shop podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, and with us we have Eliana. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm doing just fine. We're actually recording in the morning this time. We're normally recording in the afternoon. So are you feeling awake? Yes, I've got my water and I'm feeling awake-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Now with us today, we actually have a, a very unique guest. And I probably should have asked how to pronounce his last name before I started doing this intro. But he started off with just a few hundred dollars and a dream to make some socks. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's afternoon for me, so I was about to say good morning. Um, it's a bit confusing. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the beauty of time travel. Yeah. So how do you actually say your last name? Um, it's easier than it looks. It's Hara Lambus. It is way easier than it looks, Hara yeah. Lambus. Okay, cool. There very, you go. very good. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your business? Cool. So I am a, an entrepreneur who's had... A few businesses in the last 12 years, maybe 10 businesses. Of those 10, nine have failed. So I'm pretty well versed at failure. And that's kind of how I like to introduce my uh, career, is very good at failing. And the last business I had, I sold to another social network here in South Africa. And the current business that I am working on that I have done, it's the longest thing I've ever done is a premium men's sock and accessory company called Nick Harry. And what did you do before Nick Harry? The short version of the long version is that I'm actually a journalist by trade. So I studied writing, editing, and design. So I was designing white space before there were pixels, like old school design, like on pieces of paper, designing newspaper layouts with glue and scissors. And from there, progressed through the media industry in South Africa and ended up at Vodafone here in South Africa, which is the biggest telco in South Africa, and built social networks for them. And out of that experience, I ended up raising venture capital in Cape Town and building a mobile social network company called MoTribe. And that company basically built social networks for brands. We built feature phone-centric social networks. So this is before the period where smartphones had dominated the world. And we had what was then called feature phones and now called dumb phones. And they weren't very useful. They didn't have phones with big screens. So we optimized social networks for brands to target those consumers in, in Africa. So it sounds like you had a lot of communication and networking and publishing experience. So, so why socks this time? Good question. Socks was more of a passion for me um, that I'd been wearing just over a period of time. Um, at the time I was raising money for MoTribe, I 
probably pitched to 60 venture capital companies in four or five different countries over a period of 10 months. And I learned very quickly that trying to be remarkable when you're pitching is pretty important. So I would walk on stage, pull my pants up from, from the knees and show people my really loud socks. And I'd say, hi, I'm Nick. These are my socks and this is my business pitch. And people afterwards would remember the business pitch because of the socks. And that kind of got me into the sock thing. So when I exited Motribe, I had some money in my bank and I looked at the markets. I was relatively depressed because the exits I didn't want. I wanted to keep building Motribe, um, but I had money, so I wasn't that depressed. And I tried to play to where the ball was going to land. And in, in Africa right now, e-commerce is still growing. It's, it's not something that's pervasive. So four years ago, I decided I wanted to dip my toes, pun very much intended, into e-commerce. And because of my sock, I loathe saying the word fetish, but because of my sock fetish, I wanted to see if I could make socks in South Africa. So I did the research and realized that you can actually produce socks in South Africa so I started making some simple socks, and I used a very small amount of money was the idea. South Africans don't earn a lot of money as uh, on average. I think the average salary in South Africa is close to three or four hundred dollars a month. So I wanted to take that much money and see what I could build over time using that much money. And that's what we did. We manufactured two samples of our socks and photoshopped them to be pairs and listed them on the website that I built using WordPress and WooCommerce. And within 30 days, we'd made, got the equivalent in rands, about $5,000 from our $300 or $400 investment. And we rolled the business and the cash flow from there. And here we are. Amazing. So describe yeah. that moment when you had the idea for Nick Harry, the whole stock <laughs> thing. It's quite a depressing story, actually. So... Exiting a company is not always as fun as people make it out to be. Um, in fact, I'd say that most of the time it probably isn't. What do they say? A successful negotiation where both parties leave slightly unhappy. And that means that not everyone's happy all the time with their exits. So that was my case. So I was sitting in my underwear and holy colorful socks watching TV in the middle of summer after having sold my business and trying to figure out what on earth I should be doing next to get myself out of this depressive funk that I was in. And I looked at TV and saw my holy socks and thought, hmm, I wonder if I can do this myself. And I jumped onto Google, did some research, and I could. So I did. So then describe, I, I think you've already mentioned it, but describe the moment then you knew you had a serious business on your hands. Jeez, I've got to say, I, don't, I haven't really thought about exact, that exact moment. I think that it was, there was, uh, Jeff, I'm curious to know what moment you're thinking about, but I, for me, there was a moment recently where I realized not that I had an actual business, but that the business was bigger than just my friends, families, and fools. Um, I was sitting at a Burger King in between sales calls, and I sat down in the waiting queue next to a guy who was wearing my socks in a different city from where I live. And I said to him, hey, those are really nice socks. He said, yeah, man, this is great brand from Cape Town called Nick Harry. They make their socks out of bamboo. They're so comfortable. And he gave me my whole business pitch. And he was just a customer of mine that I'd never met. And I said to him at the end, well, that's really, really great. I'm actually Nick from Nick Harry. And he was like, man, that's so cool. Well done. Brilliant. Rah, rah, rah. 
and that's kind of when I knew, okay, this thing has grown a little bit bigger than I thought it would. Yeah, no, I was thinking, just even listening to you talk, the going from like, hey, I'm going to Photoshop two socks together, and then <laughs> I, sold, I sold them all. Like, that had to give yeah, me yeah, some yeah. validation, too. Yeah, so there was a point at which factories are clever. They let you make samples for free, but they're not stupid, so they don't make you a full pair. So they make you one sock of the pair. So that's when I had to Photoshop the two socks mm. in the pair. And we partnered with uh, a company that was kind of like Guilt Group or Fab.com here in South Africa. And within 10 days of launching the sale on their site, we'd sold like six or 700 pairs. But we still only had one of each sock. And I was like, oh, crap. Now we have to actually make these things. And that was kind of the point at which I thought, okay, so trendy, funky, loud bamboo socks are actually going to be a thing. And then we had to really start understanding what on earth factories were like. So we were looking at NickHarry.com, like, you know, your, all your products, and we noticed that the designs are really bold, and they're mostly out of the ordinary. So, you know, I was wondering, who decides on the designs of your socks? That is me. Like a very typical startup, the founders of the business do as much as they physically can do for as long as they can physically do it until they can afford or almost die and then hire someone. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you- it's all me. But do you gauge the interest of customers before you uh, before you uh, make it, or no, no, we don't. We do look at uh, the trends on at the moment. Obviously, now with three and a half years of data, I look back at the trends of what people have purchased, what colors sell more than other colors, and uh, what seasons produce different sales to other seasons, and then we make socks in accordance to that. But on the whole, we decide internally what we think our customers like that fit in with our brand. We are moving towards a phase where our premium members get input into what designs they want to see us produce. So would you say it's more of a gut decision? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's gut with a little bit of data behind it. Okay. We know that you received a bit of skepticism and some negative feedback in the very beginning, like kind of early on as you were diving into this whole endeavor. As a business owner, how do you know when to listen to others versus when to just shut them out and trust your gut? It's, it's really one of the most difficult questions that I have to answer. And a, another way of saying this type of question is, when do you know to quit? And it's such a difficult one because entrepreneurs by nature have to be resilient. I would say for me, it's one of the key tenants that an entrepreneur has to have is resilience. So in the face of doubt, in the face of low sales, you just push on. And I mean, I had some of my closest, smartest friends come up to me about two years into the business, sit me down and go, Nick, look, we have to really apologize. I was like, what? I don't remember you doing anything wrong. And a couple of them have actually apologized for doubting that I could make this business a real business. But they actually full on and firmly thought that I'd lost my marbles um, building a sock business online. So I think Unfortunately, the answer is a piece of string, like how long is a piece of string, because it's about how much tenacity you have and resilience you have and how much pain you can put up with. Mm-hmm. And I think, Jeff, you know well that I'm brutally honest about my experience as an entrepreneur. And I've got to say, most of it's not that fun. Like you have to be preconditioned to like the not fun parts of being an entrepreneur Um, so I think either you like it or you don't that experience and either you're going to push on or you're not. And I think you realize very quickly when you've started your own company, if you're the type of person who can push on or if you're the type of person who just needs to fold and go and get a job. 
I think that's really interesting because that's something that even the groups that I hang out with will talk about where it's like you have people that are kind of geared towards they they fit well in a job atmosphere. You have people Mm -hmm. that try to do the entrepreneur thing, but they end up being a slave to their own business. And then you have people that kind of actually get to work on their business and own the business the way that most of us kind of uh, always hope for. Could you just touch base? I mean, even with your saying, like going through these different failures in the past, just the kind of the reality of what you're talking about, because I think it's important to we've tried throughout the series a bit to pull that curtain back and not make it look all warm and fuzzy. So if you could expand on that, I think that'd be great. Yeah, sure. No problem. I mean, I think the the first reality that I kind of glanced over in the beginning is that I, I have nine failed businesses under my belt. And like, I don't wear that as, yeah, I've achieved something. But I mean, that's what it takes. How do you know what success looks like if you haven't failed? And that's kind of how I've based my entire entrepreneurial journey is, you know, I fail and I learn and I tweak and move on. But I'm obviously minimizing the fact that failure is brutal, like go through months of depression. And I'm talking about real severe depression that you're not good enough, your ego suffers. It's, it's just a very deep thing. The people around you also experience that depression too because they care about you and then they're suffering because you're suffering. So that is definitely the, the downside of the entrepreneurial journey. And interestingly, as I've gotten older, and for me, it was very a very mental landmark hitting 30 When I hit 30, I started to feel like I had more time and I could be more patient to build the things that I wanted to build. Whereas in my 20s, I wanted that that phased thing that you were just talking about that some entrepreneurs get to, their lives are dominated by their businesses and then others get to a point where they get to work on their businesses like all of us want to. And I don't think those two things are separate. I think one leads into the other. I think that over time, you build and you build and you dedicate your life to this thing And if you have a real business, at some point, it's going to tip. And you're going to have the time and the money and the team around you to stop and actually work on the things that you like to work on in your business. So for me, the distinction is is two types of people. And I know that this is quite binary when I say it out loud. But I think that you either are an entrepreneur or you're not. And Gary Vaynerchuk recently published an article, and obviously being Gary Vaynerchuk, an article uh, tweet, an uh, Instagram post, a Vine video, all of the stuff that he does. But he likened being an entrepreneur to being a professional athlete. And I like the way that he looks at that. So Tiger Woods picks up a golf club at the age of two and practices for the next 15 years of his life and then wins a major tour at the age of 20. And everyone goes, oh, man, so easy for him. And no one looks at him and goes, oh, let me do that. I'm just going to pick up a golf club when I'm 20 and hit a ball and win a tour. But everyone thinks, oh, let me just start a business and I'll all of a sudden be successful. Well, not really. You need to go through the 10 years of practice. So I think that if you're willing to put up with that practice, then great, you'll be a good entrepreneur. But most people are work are suited for working in a job and they like the security. No, I think it's great. Thank you for uh, touching on that. So to back up a little bit then, we derailed it a tiny bit, but the it must have been a really good feeling as you talk about a couple of those moments like sitting down with the guy at Burger King or being able mm. to sell Photoshop socks and like that type of deal. <laughs> what kind yeah. of experiences now give you that, like at this point in your journey, now that you're three years into it, what types of experiences give you that same sort of uh, euphoria as those moments did in the beginning? 
I still appreciate the small details. Those things really matter to me because the big things are easy to buy in terms of advertising, marketing, that sort of stuff. The little things, the genuine interactions with real people who have bought into your brand and continue to do so, those things really still engage me and make me feel like I'm hitting some level of scale. But unfortunately, I'm going to harp on about this entrepreneurial thing. Unfortunately, one of the curses of the bipolar nature of being an entrepreneur is that the good is never good enough and the bad is always worse. So I never see the good things and go, man, that was amazing. I like that makes me want to do more. I do that for three seconds and then I'm like, okay, that was rad. But who's bigger than that guy wearing my socks? And how many more socks can we sell? It's never good enough. And I suppose it's what drives people, but it's also what kind of makes this journey never ending. But airports are pretty cool for me. I often travel up to Joburg and through the country and up into Africa. And I will often see my socks on people's feet that I have absolutely didn't know existed in the world. And seeing my socks at airports is pretty cool, like walking around and getting on planes. So Nick, we know you've been also aggressively trying to open more retail locations. How has that yep. been going? It is complicated. It is very complicated. Um, I, I come from a tech background. I built my first website when I was like 11. So for me, tech has always been the easier solution than physical stuff. And in South Africa, we have a very interesting space at the moment where e-commerce hasn't exploded the way that people predicted it would. It's kind of like mobile anywhere else in the world. Mobile has been the next big thing for the last 10 years. Now it is the next big thing. But in Africa, we've been doing that for the last 20 years. So e-commerce here has been really slow to move. So our business had to shift slightly and be a multi-channel retailer quicker than we wanted to. And after having done premium slash almost luxury retail now for three and a half years, offline and online, I can pretty comfortably say that everyone who says that e-commerce is the easier of the two solutions is certifiably wrong. In retail, I've learned that it is expensive to open a store. However, when the store is open in a shopping center, you can easily have 100,000 people in the shopping center every month. Mm -hmm. And of that 100,000 people, a certain amount will walk past your store and a certain amount will convert. Whereas in e-commerce, the picking, the packing, the logistics, the packaging, the acquisition, the SEO, the blog writing, the content, it's absolutely never ending. So I have actually thoroughly enjoyed the physicality of a real retail store. The customer comes in, they engage with me, we get to sell them on our product, they get to touch and feel what we sell, they get to smell our custom branded scent, which we developed for our stores, and then the chances are they'll buy. The conversion rates in real retail are significantly higher than e-commerce, at least I'm talking obviously in, South, in the South African context. And I have found it to be a, a wholly more engaging platform for me and for my products than e-commerce. Mm -hmm. So how many stores do you have at this moment? Right now we have two and we are in the process of signing uh, contracts on two more in major shopping centers in South Africa. Okay, so, so what online tools do you use to stay organized? Um, I mean, you know, you have multiple locations and you're trying to open two more and then there's the online presence and, you know, you may have to manage all these. What do you do to stay organized? Uh, I sleep very little. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's that actually help? not... No, that doesn't help at all. I'm actually, I'm, I'm completely lying. I sleep very much. No, so uh, I think... 
you have to, it being in South Africa, we're quite cutting edge. There aren't a lot of multi-channel solutions that are robust enough for what we want to do. When I mean, when, what I mean when I say that is click and collect is a complicated thing to manage when you have multiple locations and stock across those locations, as well as gift card redemption, offline and online. There's a lot of like detailed technical things that are complicated to do that, to be honest, I haven't found a single solution to solve them all. So what we do is very typical startup-y. We do a lot of hacking. And um, we do the Paul Graham concept of do something small to do something big. So when we have a problem, we solve it manually for as long as we physically can until we absolutely can't do it manually anymore. And then we try and automate it. Um, So, I mean, I'll give you our quick breakdown of products that we use. Uh, To manage inventory across our multiple locations and warehouse, we use DEAR Inventory, D-E-A-R Inventory. Um, DEAR Inventory works quite nicely with VEND. B-E-N-D, Vend. Uh, that's our point of sale solution. And then Deer also integrates with WooThemes, a WooCommerce platform. So we use WooCommerce as our e-commerce platform. And at the moment, we're building hacks to get Vend and WooCommerce to talk to one another. Um, in terms of tools, our whole company is on Google Apps and Google Drive. Um, so that we can share our docs across all of our stores and platforms. And we use Slack really effectively in our retail stores and our warehouse to communicate with one another and minimize our email sending. Yeah, I mean, Does that answer the question? Is that what you guys are looking for? Yep. yep. Okay, good. Well, that helps. Yeah, I, have to, I have to endorse Slack also. It's made my life a million times easier. Yeah. yeah. Slack is a good place to be. Yep. <laughs> all right, so, I mean... Clearly, there's there's a lot. Like, and I mean, even working with you a little more closely, I know there's more going on than you're even alluding yep. to. But yep. to to put this, I guess, from a priority standpoint, if I could guarantee, like, say I was a genie, and uh-huh. or I was Shenron off of Dragon Ball Z or something, and, <laughs> and I could guarantee you the time to finish one task every day yep. regarding your e-commerce presence in particular, yep. what would you spend that on? Wow, that is an extremely complicated question. Okay, so, Jeff, this is such a loaded question. Man. Yep. Um, I have recently relearned the lesson, and it's a lesson I keep relearning, man. It's so frustrating because you think you know something, and then you think you remember it, but I don't. Um, I keep relearning the old adage that I've literally, since I was in the old school media with dead trees in newspapers, I keep learning that content is king. And I hate the saying, but it's just so appropriate. And the add-on to that is context is key. So if I had to be able to complete one thing, I would continue every day to grow our content that's relevant to our customers because ads are not a good way to sell a luxury product. You have to advertise without selling um, a luxury product and that's a lifestyle that's a answer to a question that's a context that leads people to think about your products not necessarily a product and price ad so for me I think that the more I could produce my content that I need to produce the better for the long term and look if you're in e-commerce and in fact let me widen that if you're building anything you have to be thinking long term and for the 20 year olds listening to this long term is not when you're 25 that's, that's not really long term I'm talking about decades all the best entrepreneurs that I read and know build things in decades. So if you're looking at making content for the next five years, then you're winning. Like that's how you should be building content. So that's what I would do every day. And by content, you're talking about what specifically? 
Um, it's varied. So I think um, Jeff will know this having worked with me a little bit closer, but I think that the idea is to have a content strategy and that could be any medium as long as it's relevant to your platform and works with the basic target market that you're after. So um, it could be a podcast if that's your thing. It could be a YouTube video. For me, um, it's actual written content, um, articles that we write um, that are relevant to our audience, our target market, um, and our product, as well as starting to build out magazine content. And I use ma- the word magazine quite loosely for lack of a better word. But just content to, to help increase the exposure of our, what we do and how we do it to the world. What is the? I want to drill down a little bit because I'm going to bring up an opposing view to what you're saying. Sure. What is the purpose of the content? Because obviously, like you're referencing the content, and it is important, but I think it's because it's going to lead to something else. Is what I'm kind of hearing, but I want you to actually say it. So, what is the intent or the purpose of the content? The intent of the content is to position our brand and our business as a thought leader in the space. And the space for me is style, and specifically men's style. So I'm, my content is not selling something. My content is helping to educate men about wearing colorful socks and wearing a tie that doesn't necessarily match your shirt um, and helping men find their voice um, when it comes to style. Men are a market that is massively indicated for when it comes to style and education. There are maybe two magazines I can think of off the top of my head that cater for them exclusively. So that's the positioning and the purpose. And I think it's an important thing. I've consulted to a lot of big brands here in South Africa, and they all want their content to sell something. And I think it's important to remember that you have to offer value before you try and sell something. And that's kind of what we go for. And then, so with that in mind, what do you say to the people? I read a, a Tim Ferriss article a little while ago where he made the argument that content isn't necessary. And then he cited things like, say, Uber or Amazon, and they didn't start with an audience. They just did their thing and got rolling. So how would you kind of rebuttal that? I would say different strokes for different folks. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing. Um, I think also Uber, I, I honestly I'd be lying if I said I did know, but I'd be really surprised if it was purely organic from zero to to a billion dollar valuation. Like, yeah, there was some seeding and some organic stuff, but ultimately they weren't paying for content, but they were getting it because their product was good. And then they were paying for it to be promoted even further. So I think that uh, maybe Tim Ferriss's idea of what content is might be a little bit limited because whether you're producing it or not, content exists and is being distributed. And I mean, a tweet, someone tweeting about your product is content that you help generate if your product is really good. So I think maybe the step that I missed here is that having a good product gets you in the game. Like that's just a default. If you don't have a good product, no matter how much content you're pushing out, it's not going to change a damn thing. But if you have a really good product and it gets sold and someone talks about it and then they read your content about it and then they tell their friends about it, now you're creating a loop that's worth closing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. It's, uh, I just wanted to be able to address the, the other side because cool. I know there's probably people out there listening and thinking like, is it necessary? Yeah, I mean, look, there are some things that you just can't produce content for. Like if you've got an app that has got nothing to do with, you know, style or whatever, writing a style article is not going to help you. But there are, I would argue, there are ways to work content into your strategy regardless of what it is that you do. And is that what you meant by context is key? Yes, absolutely. That you can be pumping out 17 blog posts a day, but if they aren't relevant or good, 
doesn't really matter at the end of the day. So I would always err on the side of quality over quantity, personally. What are your hopes and plans for Nick Harry Sox for the next 10 years? That is a deep, deep question. The plan is to roll out more stores in more countries. In, that's the next three-year plan. I think having a 10-year plan is difficult and complicated. So the 10-year plan is for us to continue to be profitable and grow, as well as providing on-trend style. Because we might not be a sock company in 10 years. I mean, socks might be proven to damage the sweating in your foot in 2030. Who knows? Like, that's the way the world is. Taxi companies didn't think Uber was going to exist in 2016. So I'm not definitely not going to predict what 10 years looks like. What I am going to say is that we will adapt. I'm building a company that can react. So, yeah, I think that's our plan is to continue to know how to react to the way the world is. Where can we find out more about you and your business? Easy. You can visit nickharry.com. That's N-I-C-H-A-R-R-Y.com. Um, we do ship anywhere in the world. And if you are visiting South Africa, we have stores in Cape Town and we are soon to have stores in Johannesburg. Love it. Thank you, Nick, for your time. This was very insightful and interesting. Absolutely my pleasure. All right. All the best. One Stop Shop is a production of Receiptful. Learn how to personalize and tailor every interaction with your customer by visiting Receiptful.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative. For help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store, visit ComeAliveCreative.com. To listen to more episodes from this series, you can visit Receiptful.com forward slash podcast. Or if you want to give us a rating on iTunes, Receiptful.com forward slash iTunes. Mm-hmm.